Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 134. The Green Bay Packers are two steps away from the Super Bowl. Surprised, Eddie? <laughs> if I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. Preach. I still am shocked. I was shocked on Monday on the Victory Monday podcast as we prepare for the divisional round on Friday. I am still a little stunned that we're talking about the Packers being that close to the Super Bowl. But here we are, Packers and Niners, a historic rivalry renewed. When they kick off on Sunday, it will be the 10th meeting in the postseason between the two teams. That will be a new NFL record. It is currently tied with the team the Packers just beat, the Packers and Cowboys. They have met nine times in the playoffs. With that history, we will take a trip down memory lane to a good Packer-Niner memory circa 1995. In this matchup, the Packers were the underdog. The Niners were the one seed. It was in San Francisco. Francisco. It was on a Saturday, and the Niners were 10-point favorites. Sound familiar? Hopefully we get the same result this Saturday. We'll talk all about it, the Jordan Love legacy of if he can beat the Cowboys and Niners back-to-back, what that would mean when you compare it to the Favre and Rodgers era. We'll look at a little bit of the X's and O's and some of the other storylines going into Saturday's matchup. We'll talk a little bit about the Bucs uh, let down in a Giannis load management game on Wednesday. We'll touch on some college hoops. We'll maybe make some football picks. I can't get a good read spread-wise on any of these divisional round games, but we'll break that down too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan a smash up the middle, face hit the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he looks, he throws! And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Oh, and we're also going to discuss at the end of the podcast our long nightmare as Bucks Brewers fans with the Bally Sports product, specifically the Bally Sports app, seems to be at an end. Jeff Bezos. By God, is that Jeff Bezos' music? All hail Bezos. All hail Bezos. It sounds like Amazon Prime to the rescue. They are bailing out Diamond Sports Group, which I think owns Bally Sports. They are bailing them out of bankruptcy, essentially, and Bucks and Brewers games sound like they're going to be available on Amazon Prime. No date seems to be set with that, although it it looks like it's trending towards at least before Brewer season and maybe before the end of Bucks season, where if you have Amazon Prime, you'll probably have to pay a little bit more. You should be able to watch Bucks and Brewers games on that platform instead of bashing your brains against a wall trying to get the Bally Sports app to work. Conversely, I guess we could just talk about it now. <laughs> Conversely, I did not think about this. We had somebody comment on a blog I wrote about this yesterday that said, this stinks if you are an actual cable customer, a Spectrum cable customer or whatever cable customer. Because if you actually still have the cable box and the big old remote, which I miss, by the way, I think I want to reattach the cord. We were so ahead of the curve, my wife and I, with cutting the cord in, like, 2015. 
And I think now at this point with having a billion apps and how much those apps cost and how little they work well, I think I'd like to reattach the cord and just get back to cable life. It was a simpler time. You could just hit guide. Everything worked for the most part. Now it's so spotty. You watch 18 different things on a million different apps. You got to close one out and then turn this one on. And then that one's not working. You got to reset this. I did get messages, though, from those folks that are still doing the cable box thing that are bummed out because now they probably are going to have to get Amazon Prime if Bally Sports is pulled or whatever its subsidiary is, is pulled from the actual cable network. They're probably going to have to pay money they weren't paying before to become an Amazon Prime member and then pay whatever surcharge there is on that. But that seems to be on the way at some point this year. I didn't think about the cable customers. If you are an app user, though, it is, it's mind-boggling how bad that app is at working at all. Every company, every digital media company, multimedia, or even single media, which I would consider B93 company, everybody has an app. We have an app. B93 has an app. And it works like 98% of the time. How this massive company with all of the regional sports coverage cannot find an app that works even 25% of the time. Ask my wife. I scream at the TV trying to watch Brewer or Bucks games. And since they've updated, it's even worse. You turn it on, and then it plays a commercial, and then it stalls out. And then you have to restart everything. You can't just exit the app and reopen it. You have to restart your entire Roku or your entire Fire Stick, load it up from the beginning, then you get back to the app. Then it plays the ad, then it plays the game. But it plays the game for 20 seconds, it's choppy, it stalls out, it fails. Guess what? You have to restart the whole thing again. You restart the whole thing again. You open the Bally Sports app. Oh, cool, it looks like it's working. Could I interest you in watching a St. Louis Blues hockey game? What? Why is that an option? Where's the Bucks game that was here two seconds ago? Now all of a sudden you think I'm in St. Louis? I get Carolina Hurricanes games all the time and not Bucks games. It is a mind-numbing process, and I cannot fathom how a company with that much reach can be so bad at just creating an app to watch streaming. It's 2024. If this were 1999 and we were using AOL discs for internet, then I could understand the issues that they are having. It is 2024, where most of these apps work pretty flawlessly, and for this one to just never work. So you knew it was a more bound product because of that. And then eventually they did announce that they were up against the wall financially. That was lingering out there for a while. I think Major League Baseball actually took over some of the team's streams, MLB.TV or whatever they call it. I think that happened during the course of the baseball season, and then probably some of that had to happen with the NBA as well. We hadn't heard much about it, though, until the news this week that Amazon was fronting them, I think, $100 million or $150 million to get them out of the weeds at least and then put those games on Amazon Prime. When that is going to happen, though, the firm date on that, I'm not quite sure. It is welcome news, though, if you are somebody that loves the Bucks and loves the Brewers and would love to watch them on TV and have been unable to do that consistently since Bally Sports took over the regional broadcast and their app has been a hot mess. All right, we talked about it now. We will not be talking about it at the end of the podcast. Let's talk about the Packers and Niners. Let's start with a trip down memory lane. As we set out the top, let's go to a happy Packer Niner memory. This is the 10th time they'll play each other in the playoffs. The Niners are 5-4 and four against the Packers in the previous nine matchups. They have won the last four, I want to say. Recent memory, recent history has not been good. 90s history, though, was very good, and it starts with the game that we're going to start on right now. The year is 1995, January of 95. It is the second straight year the Holmgren-Favre team have made the playoffs. And they are looking to take a next step. Actually, it's the third straight year. Check that third straight year. 
The first year, they won a wild card game against the Lions, lost in the divisional round at Texas Stadium against the Cowboys. The next year, they won a wild card round game against the Lions at home. That was the holding Barry Sanders to negative two yards or negative one yard rushing. They lost then in the divisional round, you guessed it, at Texas Stadium to the Cowboys. This is the third straight year that they have been in the playoffs, but they have been, you know, hitting their head up against a wall or roadblocked at that divisional round. They beat the Falcons at Lambeau Field that year in the wild card round, and now they head to the number one seed, the San Francisco 49ers, and they head to Candlestick Park, the reigning Super Bowl champion Niners. Packers are 10-point underdogs. How are they ever going to get over this hurdle that they can't seem to get past? Nobody was giving them a chance all week. Another reason I remember the beginning part of this game, this is the first time in my life that I can remember having to do something and then not being able to watch a part of the Packer game and being greatly frustrated by that. This must have been the Saturday afternoon game that year. I did not verify that before we play these highlights. I'd have to go back and look. But I bet you if you check the date, this was Saturday afternoon. And that means I was 10 years old at the time. And we played basketball this time of year during the weekends. It was always a Saturday all day. You Sometimes you played at 8 a.m., sometimes you played at noon, sometimes you played at 2 p.m., And I remember being 10 years old on my basketball team, sitting on the end of the bench, dreaming of a podcast one day. And then I realized, as I was really getting into the Packers the year prior and the year before that, it hit me that they're going to play, and I'm going to be playing basketball at the same time as the beginning of this game, that I was going to miss the beginning part of this Packer game because I've got this stupid basketball game. And I love playing basketball, but I wanted to watch this Packer game. And I will never forget at the YMCA in Sheboygan, one of the parents brought a mini radio because this is 1995. You do not have access to your phone or score center or something where you can stream the game while you're sitting there. It was a much simpler time. Somebody brought a little handheld crank radio probably or battery-powered radio, and they were listening quietly to the Packer game, and then they were giving information to the refs who were probably high school students about what was going on in the game, and we missed the first quarter of the game. It turned out to be a big quarter, though, because that's where the Packers seized control of this game. The first message that we got from the refs was that the Packers had their field goal blocked. The Packers got the opening kick, they got into field goal range, and they had their field goal. The Chris Jackie field goal was blocked. And I even remember thinking on the bench, oh, boy, we already felt like we didn't have a chance, and that's how it starts. What we didn't know was that would lead to one of the biggest plays of that year, of that game, surely, The next play after the blocked field goal, the Niners completed a pass right on the near sideline. I believe it was Wayne Simmons who popped this ball loose. Craig Newsom picked it up and took it to the house. 49ers on offense for the first time. First down from the 34. Swing pass to Adam Walker, and it is ruled a fumble that is picked up by Newsom, and Craig Newsom will score for the Packers. And then that kind of set the tone all day for the Packers. They get another stop on the next drive. They go right down the field. Actually, the way they played in this game kind of reminds me of what we saw in Dallas where they score quickly and then they get a turnover and score again and then they score again and you're up by multiple scores thinking, oh my God, are they going to do this? The 7-0 lead became 14-0. Keith Jackson had a big game in this one, probably his biggest individual game as a Packer. He caught the second touchdown of the day to put the Packers up 14-0. First and goal on the three, and a play fake. The pressure and the pass. Touchdown to Keith Jackson. And then another touchdown added either late first quarter, early second quarter. This is the first play I can remember watching, leaving the gym, getting back home, turning this game on, seeing, oh, my God, it's 14-0 Packers. 
And then they get another touchdown, another tight end chipping in. Old Chewy, Mark Chimura, who got himself in some hot water on ESPN Milwaukee this week. He caught the third touchdown of the late first quarter, early second quarter. 21-0 at this point, and the Packers were on their way. Play fake with time. Touchdown. Touchdown. Mark Chimura. Yeah, Chewy got himself in a little bit of trouble, and I don't think he saw this coming, which seems both impossible and completely possible if you've listened to Chewy on the radio. He's had a job at ESPN Milwaukee for many, many years. He's a part of the morning show on ESPN Milwaukee. They were talking this week about this game, and Chewy gave what I think he thought was kind of a harmless comment, and maybe his brain was back in this era of the highlights we were playing in the 90s where Maybe it wasn't spoken about, but it wasn't unusual for a defense to go after a star player or maybe try to hurt them or get a late hit. I'm sure that was a part of Chewy's NFL experience in the 90s. He took the mic early on an ESPN Milwaukee morning show and said, well, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea maybe if, you know, Brock Purdy drops back on the opening drive and you have somebody in there and you hit him in the legs a little late or hit him in the head. Is it worth a 15-yard penalty? These are all words that he said. And you could just tell on their live stream the way he's saying it and the look on his face. He does not think this is going to be a big deal. Meanwhile, his co-host, who I can put myself in the shoes of, I've been that person before when somebody's on the air with me saying something that you think, oh, you're really walking a line here. <laughs> please don't. Please stop. Please stop. Can we mute him? Can we mute the mic? You could just tell the producer of the other two hosts on the show are thinking this is going to be bad. But it kind of ends up being in a world where clicks mean everything and views mean everything. He said something so outrageous and so stupid that they posted on their Twitter knowing it was going to get attention, and it did. It got like 10.5 million views. That falls into the any publicity is good publicity. But Chewy was then getting dragged by San Francisco fans on Twitter who then dug up a little bit of Chewy's past, which, as we know, is not a savory situation. A lot of pictures of Chewy in an orange vest after that. Anyway, that touchdown put them up 21-0, and they go on to win 27-17, and they kind of shocked the world that day. Like I said, nobody, ourselves included, thought that they were going to win that game against the reigning Super Bowl champions as 10-point underdogs at Candlestick, the heavy underdog. And they go in there and not only win, they win in resounding fashion. They take that next step then. I didn't put this clip in here. On the full broadcast, which you can find on YouTube, the full two-and-a-half-hour broadcast of that game, at the end of that, they interview Favre and Holmgren, and both of them talked with Ron Pitts about this is another foundational block for this young team, finding out how to win, getting past the divisional round, taking another step, and getting to the NFC Championship game, which, as we know, ended like the prior two playoff runs in Texas Stadium unceremoniously against the Cowboys. I just thought, bring that one back because the similarities are amazing when you think of the underdog on the road, 10-point underdogs. Niners aren't the reigning Super Bowl champions this year, but there were a lot of parallels storyline-wise between that year in 95 in the divisional round and this upcoming game on Saturday. Certainly, too, I'm going to throw this clip in here as well. The next year where the Packers are the one seed and they're the odds-on favorite to make the Super Bowl, and they actually do go and they win the Super Bowl and everybody's very happy. That was their first playoff matchup. Packers had a bye week in round one, and then the Niners came to Lambeau. Remember the Mud Bowl in the divisional round in round two where it was just dreary and rainy in mid-30s and looked absolutely miserable at Lambeau Field? But this was another in the chapter of the Desmond Howard heroic run for Green Bay. He was great in the regular season. To me, though, this game, and even with the Super Bowl and the fact that he got Super Bowl MVP and he had the big kick return in that game for the touchdown, this is almost the first thing I think of when I think of Desmond in the rain and muck at Lambeau Field, the first punt of the game, and he takes it to the house. And a good kick, considering the conditions by Thompson. 
Howard at the 29. Desmond Howard into 49er territory, and Desmond Howard may go all the way. There are no flags down. Touchdown, Green Bay. 71 yards. Mike Holmgren said that field position and special teams were going to be a major player in this game. You can call him Isaiah because he was a prophet. Dick Stockton, wake up. <laughs> what was going on with Dick Stockton on that call? As I was playing that on the air on B93 this morning, I hunted down that clip and I thought, my God, that is the most lackluster NPR call of a touchdown I've ever heard in a big moment in a big game. Matt Millen tried to bring some juice there with some profit talk at the end of it. Dick Stockton, wake up, my man. That set the tone that day, and then he almost took a second one. Remember, the next possession, the Packers got another stop, and the Niners had to punt again, and all he had to do was get past the punter inside the 10-yard line, and the punter, Tommy Thompson, not the former Wisconsin governor, dropped him by a shoelace, and otherwise he would have had back-to-back punt returns for touchdowns. Packers won that game 35-14. to There's other great history in the 90s, too. They went in there in 97. I don't know. We, we don't look at that season this fondly because of the way it ended with Elway. They had to go to San Francisco that year in the NFC Championship game as slight underdogs, and they dominated that game. I think it was 23-10, to 10, but it was not even really that close by the end of it. They won there, too. The next year, or the year, yeah, the year after that was the first time it didn't go the Packers' way. That was the Owens, 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 the Terrell Owens catch in the end zone. On that drive, Jerry Rice, a clear fumble, no instant replay. That You could argue that's one of the biggest plays, though, that led to instant replay. On that drive before the Owens catch, it should have never happened. In a world where there would have been instant replay, that play, that Owens play, never would have happened. Jerry Rice, inside the Packer 40-yard line, so clearly fumbled the ball. I don't have the audio of it here. John Madden and Pat Summerall, both in the late stages of their broadcasting career, Pat Summerall for sure, they clearly saw it as the play was unfolding, and the official runs up there and just down, 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 and they didn't replay it. The replay on Fox, though, clearly shows he fumbles it. That was the first time it did not go the Packers' way. Packers beat the Niners, and Jeff Garcia, remember him? In 2001, in a wild card game at Lambeau Field. And then things turn. You get the Kaepernick matchups in whatever years those were, 2012 and 2013, where they just couldn't tackle Colin Kaepernick if their life depended on it. They looked like newborn baby calves trying to tackle Kaepernick in San Francisco. They lost that one 45-31. Then Kaepernick the next year after the Rodgers to Cobb at Soldier Field to win the NFC North. They host that playoff game as an 8-7-1 team. Niners were a 12-win team coming to Lambeau. They won that one 23-20. Of course, the 2019 NFC Championship game where it was really over very early in that game. And the most recent one was the divisional round game in 2021, or is that 22? That was 22, or maybe 21. Season 21, year 2022. And that was the special teams game where the Packers gave up 10 points on special teams on a blocked kick that would have gone in for Mason and on that block punt late that was returned for a touchdown, they lost that game 13-10 to on a Robbie Gold field goal. Rodgers doesn't get enough blame for that game as well, though. He forced it to Devontae all game that game as they lost that game 13-10. So the recent memories are not great. I thought we'd bring back one of the happier memories of a Packer-Niner divisional round game. Let's talk about the matchup coming up tomorrow. We are 31 hours away as I'm recording this right now. Jordan Love has a chance to do something really extraordinary. I don't know if he'll be able to pull it off. But when you think of the two eras before the Jordan Love era, which we're just at the beginning of now, in the Favre era, 
What team could he never get past in the playoffs? We just talked about it. He couldn't get past the Cowboys. In the Rodgers era, what team could he never get past, even though he chirped them? Remember he had on draft day when the Niners did not take him and the Packers eventually did? Remember then that when they asked him about that during the draft, he said, or he, something, the question was something to the effect of, how upset are you that the Niners didn't draft you? And he said, not as upset as they're going to be that they didn't draft me. And then he went on to go like one in five against the Niners in his career and never beat them in the playoffs. Those were the two Achilles heel teams. Favre couldn't get past the Cowboys and Rodgers couldn't get past the Niners. Can you imagine if in his first playoff run as the Packers starting quarterback, Jordan Love goes into Dallas in his first playoff game, beats the breaks up the Cowboys, and then goes into San Francisco in the next round and beats the Niners. He could exercise both of those demons of the last two regimes in his first playoff run. God, I hope it happens. Speaking of Jordan Love, I thought this clip was interesting. And we've talked about this throughout the year. We talked about it a lot at the beginning of the year with the transition from Rodgers to Love and what would that mean for the offense. And a part of that conversation that we brought up back in August or July is that I was, and I think a lot of people were, intrigued to see what the Matt LaFleur offense would look like without the tailoring to Aaron Rodgers. When you have a Hall of Fame quarterback, and I'm not saying that that was a mistake by either side. Obviously, Rodgers had two MVP seasons. They made a couple of NFC Championship games with LaFleur and Rodgers working together. It did work. When you have a quarterback of that caliber, yes, you are going to give them a longer leash. You are going to give them the ability to audible, do RPOs, get out of things, move into other things as they're seeing blitzes, whatever. But you just knew at no point during the Rodgers time with LaFleur had we seen the actual Matt LaFleur offense just getting run as is. A part of the storyline coming into the year was Jordan Love as a first-year starter probably wasn't going to get that much flexibility where he'd be able to make a million calls at the line if he wanted to. For the most part, and very early in the year especially, you just knew LaFleur was going to call a play, and then a young quarterback is going to say, okay, we're going to do what our head coach wants us to do, which means we were going to see the Matt LaFleur offense as it was intended to be run. Here is Nick Bosa, stud defensive lineman for the Niners, kind of a down year for him, 10.5 sacks, which is still a great year. He had 18.5 last year, and he is going to be a problem, and somebody the Packers are going to have to stop on Saturday. Here's what Bosa had to say about Jordan Love and Matt LaFleur and the offense they're running and how it differs from the Aaron Rodgers offense. What Kyle talks about is, is the whole team has improved throughout the entire season. They've gotten a lot of guys healthy, and, and they have a lot of the same guys from the past really good teams they've had, and um, a quarterback who does exactly what he's coached to do, which Aaron Rodgers is a Hall of Famer and unbelievable, but he kind of went outside of the realm of, of coaching. And and uh, sometimes it's it's good when you have a guy who, who does what he's coached to do. Huh. I thought that was a very interesting soundbite from Nick Bosa during the course of the week. Can Jordan Love stay on his heater? A lot of the preview of this game is exactly what it was last week for the Cowboy game. We can almost just replay the parts of that podcast. Just splice them in here, except we'll change. We'll do a very crude overlay. Anytime I say Cowboys, I'll just say 49ers. We'll just put that over the top of it. Because it is all the same. I do think, like I thought against the Cowboys... 
The Packers should be able to score. The Niner defense, to me, is better than the Cowboy defense. The Cowboy defense was not bad. The Niner defense, I believe, is a notch better because their front seven is better. Cowboys had Micah Parsons. I get that. Defensive player of the year candidate. Nick Bosa, to me, is on his level. And then that linebacking core for this Niner team is definitely a notch or two above the Cowboy linebacking core led by Fred Warner for the Niners. He is going to be a problem. On Saturday, you would think, and he has been. Warner has been the biggest issue the Packers have had offensively going back to those Rodgers runs and the playoff matchups between these two teams. Still, though, with how this offense is rolling right now and how LaFleur is calling plays and Love is running plays and guys always seem to be open, my feeling is they are going to be able to score enough in this game. I don't know if they're going to score 48 the way they did against the Cowboys. I think they can score 27-ish or 30-ish points. They're probably going to need to do that to get a win. You're probably going to have to be around 30 if you want to get the win. With the way they're cooking right now, and look, that can change, and they can go out there and get shut down on Saturday. We're going to find out, obviously, and we'll know in 42 hours whether or not it was successful or not. The way things are going right now, putting 33 up against Carolina, putting 33 up against Minnesota, putting 17 up against the Bears, but should have scored much more in that game. They dominated that game offensively, just couldn't finish. And then what what they did against the Cowboys, putting up 48 against a pretty decent Cowboy defense, it feels like with Aaron Jones back fully healthy and cooking the way he is and putting 100 yards up on the ground seemingly every game and the hat trick of touchdowns against the Cowboys, with Love throwing the way he is with these young wide receivers coming along and getting more and more confident and comfortable, it feels like this team should be able to score points. The question, like it was for the Cowboy game, is going to be Joe Barry. Did he save his job already? We'll find out maybe. I think he did. Can Joe Barry's defense do enough? Can they find a way to limit an offense that has a million weapons led by Christian McCaffrey? We know the Packer run defense has been suspect a lot this year. They were better against the Cowboys, but McCaffrey and Tony Pollard, you're talking about almost two different games right there. McCaffrey is one of the best, if not the best in the game right now, running and out of the backfield receiving in the NFL in terms of running backs. I think he's got almost 2,000 total yards on the year and should get legitimate top three MVP votes. Can you limit him? Can you find a way to limit Debo Samuel and George Kittle? Why do I think his name is Greg? George, not Greg Kittle. Can you limit Brandon Ayuk, who is a 14-ish, 100-yard receiver? He led them in receiving yards this year. There are a lot of top-level weapons for this Niners team. Can Joe Barry's defense do what they've been doing, where they only gave up Three points, really, to the Vikings. They only gave up nine points to the Bears. They really only gave up 16 points. If you want to say 20-ish, fine. I'm not going to hold them accountable for Matt LaFleur putting in special teams players in the fourth quarter and having them try to defend the top-tier weapons the Cowboys have who were still on there trying to win the game. I know the numbers, the raw numbers, because of those last few drives to the Cowboys look like the Packers gave up a lot of yards and they gave up 32 points. Really, though, in the part of the game that had consequence, they gave up 16 points to an elite offense, the number one offense in the league. Can they do that again? Can they build on that? Can they get turnovers the way they did against the Cowboys? I think you only need one. Like we talked about heading into the Cowboy game, I thought they needed a play, a strip sack, an interception. They got two of them. They got a pick from Jair that set them up on a short field where they scored a touchdown, and they got the pick six from Darnell Savage. If you get a pick six, I think they're going to win this game. If you can just get one of those things, though, get a turnover, get a fourth down stop on fourth and short, they try to do a purdy push or whatever they're going to do, do that, get an interception, something like that. They're going to need that to happen because this Niner team is better than the Cowboys. They're a one seed for a reason. Cowboys, the two seed for a reason. 
They're going to need the defense to do something like they did against Dallas to get a field-tilting play or two. I think one should do it, but if you can get two like they did against the Cowboys, then I do think this Packer team is going to win. Can that defense do that? And like we talked about heading into the Cowboy game, can special teams just be normal? We just talked about the most recent divisional round matchup between these two teams. Not only was the special teams unable to be normal, they were abnormal across the board. The blocked kick, the blocked punt return for a touchdown. They cost him the game, and Packers could have and should have scored more points in that game in bad field conditions in the snow at Lambeau that year. They lost the game 13-10, and their special teams legitimately cost them 10 points. That's the difference between a win and a loss. Can special teams be normal? I think they were mostly normal. You know, we talked about the Carlson kick and the extra point, another missed extra point in Dallas. But... They didn't muff any punts. They didn't turn the ball over. They didn't have any blocked kicks or blocked punts. That's pretty good. For the Packers special teams, for the bar that they have set, they handled themselves pretty well in Dallas. If they can do that again on Saturday, I'd love to not see a missed extra point. If they can do that again on Saturday, they're going to be, I think, in a position to win this game. But most of all the ideas that we talked about heading into the Dallas game apply to this Niner matchup. One other subplot from the week was Devontae Wyatt, who had a good year, second year out of Georgia. He had a sack and a half in very limited time his rookie year. He had six sacks this year, and like we discussed, I think after the Bears game, if he could just finish some of these so many times this year, he was right on the quarterback and they slipped away from him, he probably could have had eight, nine, ten sacks on the year. You love the steps he's taking, though. He's a disruptive force on the defensive line. He was being talked to after Wednesday's practice, And I couldn't find clean audio of it. Essentially, they were talking to him about how do you limit this Niner offense, and his answer was putting pressure on Brock Purdy. And he basically said, if we put pressure on Purdy, we are guaranteed to get a turnover. That was the phrasing he used, guaranteed to get a turnover. He said that Brock Purdy throws low a lot of the time. Brock Purdy doesn't respond well to pressure. Now, look, if I had my druthers, what are druthers? I don't know. If I had them, though, Would I have Devontae Wyatt saying those kinds of things leading into a big matchup where you're the underdog? No, I would not. I would prefer that Devontae Wyatt does not say the things that he said about Brock Purdy and the Niner offense in that short interview outside of his locker. That said, I believe the locker room talk and the bulletin board material is very overblown for a game like this. This is the NFL. This is the NFL divisional round playoff game where the winner goes to the NFC Championship game and is one step away from making the Super Bowl. I don't believe in bulletin board material at that level. I don't think anybody in the Niner offense was sitting around on Thursday, scrolling through Twitter, saw the Devontae Wyatt interview and said, well, Mike, I think we should we should really try to win on Saturday. Now, I really think, you know what? Before, I was going to give 80% or 85%, but now, because of Devontae Wyatt, I'm giving 100%. I don't believe that at this level. If this were a September 18th game and Devontae Wyatt said something like that early in the year in a game that maybe doesn't matter as much, okay, then I think you can maybe get an extra 5% out of somebody on the Niners. At this level, with what's at stake, I don't think anything Devontae Wyatt or any Packer could say during the course of the week is going to give the Niners extra motivation. You don't need extra motivation, I don't think, in an NFL divisional round playoff game. That was a subplot of the week as well. Can you win in the trenches on Saturday? That'll be a big part, too. It always is. The old John Madden, can you win with the big uglies? The Packer offensive line has been playing so much better. It is not a coincidence that as they started to gel, remember at the beginning of the year, 
They lost Bakhtiari. Rasheed Walker looked like he didn't even know what football was for a couple of weeks there. Zach Tom wasn't healthy. Elton Jenkins wasn't healthy. Josh Myers was not having a good year. As things got going, though, they started to come together, and Elton Jenkins got healthy, and Josh Myers started playing better, and Zach Tom got healthy and looked like he looked his rookie year, which was a very good and serviceable right tackle. Rashid Walker, the more reps he got, remember they were doing for a while with Walker and Yash Nijman rotating in and out. Walker started playing a lot better, and eventually that rotation went by the wayside, and Nijman went to back to being a backup, and Walker got all the reps. He's playing a lot better. As that offensive line started to get it together, that's when the offense began to click in. They moved the ball more effectively, got down the field, got the running game going, got Aaron Jones back. Can that offensive line continue with that against an elite front seven with Fred Warner and the blitz packages and with Nick Bosa and the different people that they can throw at that offensive line? If the Packer offensive line can hold its own the way it did against Dallas, they should have a chance to win this game. Conversely, can the Packer front seven put pressure on Brock Purdy? I'm not sure I subscribe to the Devontae Wyatt newsletter that putting pressure on him guarantees a turnover. But you do not want to give him time. If you give Brock Purdy time, I don't care how well the secondary for the Packers is playing, and they played really well against CeeDee Lamb and Ferguson for the most part in Dallas on Saturday. I know Ferguson had three touchdowns, but they two of those were late. Can the secondary keep up with Debo and Ayuk and Kittle for a small amount of time? Yes, but if you don't put pressure on Purdy, eventually those guys are going to win out. With the way the NFL is officiated, with the way the NFL gears itself toward offense, and with how good those guys are, Kittle and Ayuk and Debo and McCaffrey in space, if you don't put pressure on Purdy, he's going to pick you apart because those guys are too good. You could have prime Deion Sanders. You could have prime, I don't know, who are the all-time cornerbacks? Uh, Daryl Green? from the Redskins back in the day. You could have all the prime corners and Willie Wood and everybody out there. They're only going to be able to defend these guys for a small window in the modern NFL. You have to find a way to get pressure on Brock Purdy, or he will have a field day on Saturday. How about Brock Purdy, by the way? Where did he come from? Mr. Irrelevant. In his second year, the numbers he put up, 31 touchdowns, 10 picks, quarterback rating of 113. You know what he kind of reminds me of? And I know the storylines are different, he reminds me a little of Kurt Warner, where Kurt Warner came out of nowhere with that greatest show on turf with St. Louis in 99. Now, Kurt Warner had been fumbling around a bit. He was in Green Bay for a while as a backup. He was working as a, at a grocery store. He was the backup that year to Trent Green, who went down with an injury early in the year. I firmly believe if Trent Green does not get hurt, I still think the Rams have that run, and they put up those points and win the Super Bowl. But I think Trent Green is the quarterback, because that's how loaded that offense was. Any competent quarterback would have had an excellent year there. And Green at that time was a pretty good quarterback, and we found out that the backup Kurt Warner was also a very good quarterback. They just sort of, to me, those storylines resonate with each other, where it's this guy that came out of nowhere, in Purdy's case, Mr. Irrelevant, literally the last pick of the draft, and they end up on this team with all of these weapons. For the Rams, it was Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce and Marshall Falk. For the Niners, it's Christian McCaffrey and Ayuk and Kittle and Debo Samuel. They end up in a really good place, but they have talent too. And then all of a sudden, a player that didn't have any expectations ends up rolling to MVP conversations. Where did he even come from? I don't even know. Was it Iowa State? I feel like Purdy came from, remember in the in wrestling in the 90s when they would say people were from parts unknown? I think they always said that about the Ultimate Warrior. From parts unknown. And really, Ultimate Warrior was born in a lab of cocaine and steroids. But they all said parts unknown. I think they said that for The Undertaker for a while. It kind of gave you this mystery around them. I feel like Brock Purdy is from parts unknown. Where did he come from? 
But if you give him time, he will have a good game on Saturday. Got to find a way to dial up some pressure. You cannot sit in the zone, Joe Barry. And they didn't. For To Joe Barry's credit, they have been getting out of that zone defense. They have been going to it sometimes, but not nearly as much as they were during that horrific run of games against the Giants and against Tampa and against Carolina. They have gone to more man. They have gone to more blitz packages. You got to find creative ways to get after Brock Purdy and not give him much time in the pocket. Injury-wise, Christian Watson's a full go. He had no injury designation during the course of the week. He had the one catch for nine yards in Saturday's win or Sunday's win against Dallas. When you look at the All-22, though, and some of the Packer beat reporters and the better podcasters out there looked over this, he drew so much attention. That is what led to guys like Luke Musgrave being wide open for a touchdown or who else had a big game? Romeo Dobbs being open over the middle. Christian Watson got a lot of attention, a lot of double teams, and that opened things up for other guys. He is a full go. They didn't say anything about his hamstring all week long. The other one to watch for is Jair. I think Jair is going to play. He got out there against the Cowboys, had a massive impact on that game. Then he went down, was it late third quarter, early fourth quarter? He rolled that same ankle. He did not return because he didn't have to. If that was a one-score game, would Jair be back out there? I don't know. I don't know if anybody asked him that during the course of the week or asked LaFleur that during the course of the week. I believe in this circumstance with how much is on the line, Jair will be out there, and they're going to need everybody defensively having to deal with that wide receiving core and that running game and Purdy at quarterback as well. Packers are 10-point favorites still. Some books have them at 10.5. Some books have them at 9.5. We'll split the difference and say 10. We'll maybe make some picks. I'll play the intro package and all that. I don't know if I'm going to read on any of these lines to be honest with you but we'll go over them in a little bit Packers are holding his 10 point underdog 715 kickoff on Saturday night we are on our way tomorrow I cannot believe it and enjoy it by the way as my last thing on this game enjoy it I'm gonna try to do the same this is me talking to myself because this is a real rarity in sports and it's one of the more enjoyable types of seasons I think that you can find at any level in any kind of sport it is the unexpected season Remember, for most of the Rodgers run and most of the Favre run, with the exception of those early years, those growing years, you felt a lot of stress as a fan. The Packers were the one-seater, the two-seater. They were coming off of a division championship, and you felt like, God, we've got this once-in-a-lifetime quarterback. We have to win these games. We have to get him more rings. We have to get and build his resume and his legacy more, and you've got to get to more Super Bowls and get two or three rings, and then can you have him in the conversation as the greatest of all time? All of these things were happening for a lot of that Rodgers run. And don't get me wrong, winning 12 or 13 games and being the one seed and winning division titles, we had a lot of fun doing that. But the playoffs were so stressful because they were the favorite a lot of the time. And you did feel that pressure of you want their legacy to grow and you want them to capitalize on these once-in-a-lifetime quarterbacks. That involved a lot of stress as a fan on these games. This is going to be stressful because it is the playoffs, but not as much. This team has already exceeded expectations. And that's the most fun you can have as a fan where you're going into these games. The team has nothing to lose. They're young. They're loose. They're coming together. They're fun to watch. Nobody would have guessed at the beginning of the year that we'd be talking about a playoff team and not only a playoff team, but a team that beat the two seed on the road soundly and is now in the divisional round of the playoffs. It is one of the rare things as a fan of a team where you get a run like this where it's all gravy and it is house money and maybe I'll feel differently during the game or if they lose, I'll feel differently after the fact. But heading into it, this is house money. If they lose by 21 on Saturday and they get boat raced, so what? They're the youngest team in the league. Their future is bright. They found their franchise quarterback, and they way exceeded expectations making the second round of the playoffs. If they win on Saturday, 
another chapter in what has been a remarkable run at the end of the year. But savor these because next year the expectations are back. Next year, with the way they perform now, next year we are going to expect that Jordan Love is going to be a top 10, top 15 MVP candidate to begin the year, and he will be. We are going to expect them to compete for a division title. We are going to expect them to have a home game at Lambeau Field in the playoffs and to make a deeper run and make a deeper run than they did this year, which is already the second round. Those are all going to be back next year. So enjoy this because the stress of expectations are going to be back in less than a year. Whatever the result is on Saturday, try your best to enjoy the ride, John. (laughs) Try your best to do it. All right, let's talk real quickly about where am I here? We can go over the Bucks real fast. No Giannis on Wednesday. He was a late injury scratch in Cleveland. The Cavs are a good team. They were 23 and 15 going into Saturday or going into Wednesday. They were the fifth best record in the East or fourth best record in the East. So that's not a bad team. That's a playoff team from last year. That's a young, growing team. Bucks at the last second hold out Giannis with a shoulder contusion and they get their doors blown off on national TV. I have to admit, I thought in games without Giannis this year, and they did have a nice win against Toronto earlier in the year where they didn't have Giannis, and that was a game on the road where they don't play well against that team, but they did get a win in that game. But when Giannis misses a game in years past, you just knew it wasn't going to be a win, even with Middleton, even with Drew. I thought with Dame, with acquiring a second superstar, when you didn't have Giannis, you'd at least still have one superstar on the floor. I thought that these games without Giannis would be a little more competitive they just didn't look into it at all. They were down 22-2 to in the first five minutes, and the game was basically over. Middleton couldn't hit a shot. That didn't help. Dame was off the mark as well. And without Giannis, and if those two guys aren't going, it is going to be a long night. And it was a long night. I think they lost by about 30. They fall to 28-13 and on the year. They'll have their chance for some revenge, as we discussed on the Monday podcast. The schedule is so peculiar for this run of games. They're in Detroit in the afternoon on Saturday at 2 o'clock tip time. Then they're in Detroit on Monday. Then Cleveland back at home Wednesday and Friday next week. We'll see if Giannis is back Saturday for the matchup with the lowly Pistons. How many wins do they have on the year now? Three wins? Just disappointing on Wednesday when you have Dame out there and you have Middleton out there. Even though it's a good team you're playing, it's on the road, it's on national TV, and the Cavaliers maybe have more to prove. You would have hoped that would have been a closer game and not to get blown out in the fashion that they did. One other NBA note that is worth going over. We've talked about the Bucks' struggles against the Pacers, that budding rivalry, and now after the back-to-back losses to begin the new year, the Pacers have beaten the Bucks four out of five times this year. They make a trade to acquire Pascal Siakam. This is a big trade. Pascal is a guy who averages 24 points and eight rebounds-ish a game over the last three or four years. He was a big part of the run of success in Toronto. He was on that 2019 team that beat the Bucs in the Eastern Conference Finals, even though that was a team that revolved way more around Kawhi Leonard. He was an important part on that team. He's been an important part on Raptors teams that have beaten the Bucs in the regular season over the years. He's long. He's a good defender. He can hit shots from all over the place. And now you pair him with another superstar. The problem Siakam had was he's not a number one. When Kawhi left, they were asking Siakam to be a number one in Toronto, and that's not what he is. He's a good number two, though, and he only has to be a number two with Tyrese Halliburton in Indiana. And you mix him in with Turner and all the other pieces they've got going. They had to give up Bruce Brown, which hurts them defensively, but then it was just him and a bunch of picks, which doesn't hurt you in the immediate season. Brown does a little bit, but the picks certainly don't. You now put Siakam on that team with Halliburton and everything else they've got going on, and Siakam has been a problem for the Bucs in the recent past. 
That's a really dangerous team now. You already were struggling against them. Now they add him. That's a team to watch out for come playoff time. We know they're not going to meet up again in the regular season. They've already played five games. When I saw that Woj bomb, though, on whatever day it was Thursday, I thought, oof, that makes them a lot better, and they were already a concern. Talking about college hoops, Badgers lost at Penn State on Tuesday. Didn't have the defense. Scored 83 points. In a rare occurrence in any of, I was going to say the Greg Gard era, but the Dick Bennett era, the Bo Ryan era, they just couldn't get stops late. Penn State, kind of a mediocre Penn State team, a little under 500. They win 87-83. First Big Ten loss of the year. They weren't going to go unbeaten in the Big Ten. You would have rather that first loss come against an Illinois team or a Purdue team. But the Badgers and seemingly every team are always good for one of those bumps in the road, on the road. And it's the middle of the week. It's negative 1,000 degrees outside. And that Penn State arena, I don't think they ever play well there. That arena is not conducive to any kind of energy. You even turn that game on, it's got the dark blue, it's half full, it's just a dreary atmosphere, and they couldn't seem to really get up for that game, and that's been a problem at Penn State over the years. They dropped that game, they are 13-4, 5-1 in the Big Ten, still have a two-game lead in the Big Ten. They're back on the floor tonight, a rare Friday game, Indiana at the Kohl Center. Badgers are catching 11 points as the favorite. Indiana's not ranked, but they're 12-6, and and I think they're over 500 in conference. That's a lot of points. 11 at home at the Cole Center tonight. I think that's on Big Ten Network. Marquette got a win against Villanova on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They needed that at home on Monday. They're back to 500 in conference. I don't know how I feel about them on the road at St. John's on Saturday. Even beating Villanova, they didn't play all that well in that game. Villanova is just a couple of steps down from where they were, and Marquette had enough to take them out and expand that lead. I think they won by 13. They did cover. They added a lot of that at the end of the game, though. I wouldn't say they looked worlds better on Monday than they had been in the prior two losses in the Big East Conference play. St. John's has Rick Pitino on the sideline. Rick Pitino back on the big stage, back in New York. This is in Madison Square Garden. Marquette doesn't play well there to begin with. And with that infusion now of Patino in that element back in New York and trying to raise that St. John's program back to prominence, I don't know. I don't like that recipe going into it. 11 a.m. tip time for the 17th-ranked Golden Eagles on Saturday. By the way, I was only one off on Monday's podcast of where the Badgers would end up. I thought I predicted number 12 there, number 11. I was way off on Marquette. I thought they dropped to the late 20s or maybe be even out of the top 25. They only dropped to number 17. They'll be at St. John's 11 a.m. tip time on Saturday. I, I, I will play the picks music, but I'm not sure we're going to make some picks. Wild card weekend. Let's let's go over the gambling odds. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to one on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. So we did end up losing our teaser. <laughs> the... The Eagles turned out to just be bad. Remember, we, I was talking a lot about how, oh, I've seen this before, where a Super Bowl team loses steam at the end of the year, and then everybody's counting them out, and they end up winning that game by 14. Well, it turns out they just stink on ice. It just turns out the Eagles are really bad at the end of the year. And they get their brakes beaten off by Baker. I feel good for Baker Mayfield, by the way. What a resurrection year for him. He had that nice run in Cleveland. Didn't feel like he really got a fair shake there, even though he got them to the playoffs, and he got them to the second round of the playoffs a few years ago. Then he was kicking around for a while. He was in Carolina, eventually landed with the Rams, sort of had a renaissance at the end of last year with the Rams, which kept him going in the NFL, and he gets signed with this one-year deal in Tampa, has a tremendous year there, and he's got them in the second round of the playoffs. I've, I've always kind of liked Baker. I got, they, they got a really quality win, and they have a chance, I think, to beat Detroit on the road on Sunday. I don't know if they will, but they have a chance the way their offense is playing. Let's go over the odds. I thought about putting a teaser together. I just can't get a read on these. Divisional round is tough because, especially for the two Saturday matchups, 
We saw the Packers dominate the Cowboys. So everybody, the public is feeling good about what they saw from the Packers. And the Texans blow the doors off of Cleveland. So the public is feeling really good about the Texans and what they saw last weekend. And because we did not see the Niners play and we did not see the Ravens play, they are not top of mind the way the Packer blowout win was and the way the Texans blowout win was. Both of the Packers and Texans are catching 10 points. So this is the gambling mousetrap. You saw the Packers and Texans with huge wins. You did not see the Niners and Ravens. Ooh, and the Packers and Texans, they're both catching 10. There's no way they don't cover 10 with the way they're playing. And then I guarantee you, I hope it's not the Packers, but I guarantee you one of those teams is probably going to lose by two touchdowns or more. It happens every divisional round, and I walk into the mousetrap almost every year. I'm trying not to this year. I do think the Ravens will win. I want the Packers to win so bad. The Packers, I think, will cover 10. The outright win's going to be tough. We'll say, the, we'll say they are. <laughs> In the interest of homerism, we'll say they are. The Ravens will beat the Texans. I think the Texans can't cover. It's just I can't get a read on it. We're not going to do anything with that. I don't think we're doing anything with any of these, honestly. The Buccaneers are in Detroit that Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Detroit, six and a half point favorites. You know what I mean? These lines are just tough to get a read on right now. Buccaneers are playing as well as anybody heading into the playoffs and then get that win at home against Tampa. The Lions don't blow a lot of people out. I think if I had to make a pick, you know what? I'm picking Tampa plus six and a half there. I think that's going to be a field goal game or a four-point game. I think that'll be a close game. Put that on the ledger. Buccaneers plus six and a half in De- in Detroit on Sunday afternoon. Lions, by the way, getting that second home playoff game. Feel good for them. They kind of got nuts and bolts. We got screwed out of that with the way that Cowboy game ended. They end up getting the second home playoff game anyway. I will take, we're going to put it as an official pick. With the loss in the teaser, we are 51-36-5. We're still up 15 units. We'll play with a little bit of house money. Since the Packers are, why shouldn't we? I'll take Tampa plus six and a half in Detroit. And then from a national audience perspective, the game of the week will be the reigning Super Bowl champs on the road in Buffalo. Not sure what the weather will be like in Buffalo. By the way, the there's a pretty good chance of rain in the Packer-Niner game. Put that in the back of your mind, too, especially if you want to bet the over on total points. Packers-Niners over is 50 and a half, which is a lot. And if it's going to be sloppy, that could play a role. Not sure what the weather looks like for Buffalo as of yet. Chiefs in Buffalo. Can Josh Allen and the Chiefs or in the Bills finally get past the Chiefs? Patrick Mahomes in his first ever road playoff game. Buffalo sitting as three-point favorites. That's such a coin flip game. I wouldn't touch that one. The one pick I'll make, Buccaneers plus six and a half on the road in Detroit. All right, we'll come back after it on Monday morning. Let's hope it's a victory Monday. We may do a Sunday podcast if it's a victory. So they win, and I'm not hungover on Sunday. There may be. Probably not. Monday. Victory Monday podcast. Let's do it, shall we? That'd be fun. We will recap whatever happens in the Packer Niner game in the NFL weekend. We'll talk a little bit about the Bucks weekend, college hoops over the weekend as well. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.